The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Welcome, welcome. Happy Wednesday, everybody. You made it. You're halfway through the week. And we have a brand new episode for you today. I couldn't be more thrilled to introduce today's guest, who is not only a friend, but someone I respect so much. Sophia Bush is an actress, activist, entrepreneur, and global education access advocate. Over the course of her career, Bush has been a fan favorite and has captured film and television audiences alike with the diverse characters she portrays. Off screen, she's also an early stage tech investor who looks to bolster companies that create innovation and efficiency in people's lives. Named one of the most charitable celebrities, Sophia devotes free time to bettering girls' education and the environment. She inspires millions as she uses her personal platform and social media influence to raise awareness and funds for great causes. Since taking to social media to share her passion for change, Bush has inspired young people to join her in raising nearly a half a million dollars for charity. She has built three primary schools in Guatemala and Laos and now serves as a global ambassador for Glamour's The Girl Project. She is a founding member of I Am A Voter and the host of the Work In Progress podcast, where she interviews people about how they've gotten to where they are and where they still think that they're going. And I love this because these discussions stem from her aha moment of realizing you are allowed to be both a masterpiece and a work in progress simultaneously. Preach. I'm all about that. We got to catch up while Sophia was on location for a television show she was shooting and in the midst of a mandatory quarantine, which required her to be alone in a hotel room for two weeks straight, which sounds like just what the doctor ordered for myself and every other mom who's been locked in the house with their children for almost a year. But it brought up a really interesting conversation about what she thought she would do with the time to be restorative and what in fact actually is restorative to us when we need it most. And I think that that's something that we could all deep dive on as we look to try to practice as much self-care as we possibly can during this trying time. So I really hope you enjoy her as much as I did. In the meantime, please keep in touch. Let us know what you think. And if there's anybody else that you would love to hear on the pod, we always love your feedback and suggestions. So just let us know. So without further ado, here's this week's episode. Sophia, I'm so happy to see you. Where am I finding you? This looks like a very peaceful, beautiful environment. So I am currently four days into a 14-day mandatory quarantine for COVID safety protocols up in Toronto. I was meant to shoot the pilot that I will start once this quarantine is over, last February, so February of wow. 2020, and we will get to it in February of 2021. So that's wild to have a, you know, a year long delay on a job. Yeah. 
How's the quarantine going? It's good. It's weird. I thought I'd be doing all these things. You know, I packed face masks and ankle weights because I thought I was going to take like forward space classes and do some Pilates and use this as this restorative time. And I have honestly just been napping and binge watching Grey's Anatomy. Why is everyone going back to Grey's Anatomy right now? I feel like that's the show of 2020 and 2021. I mean, first of all, it's it's brilliant. Shonda, brilliant. The pace is so good and the relationships are so good and you're invested in the cases. But also I think there's really something to being in, you know, a year in really into this pandemic and seeing doctors save people, seeing medical professionals and healthcare workers achieve the impossible. It it gives you hope. It makes you feel comforted I mean, or maybe that's just me. Maybe it just makes me feel very comforted because my- Oh, I think a lot of people are going back to that show. There's just so much fear and anxiety. I mean, even coming here, I had to get on a plane and I was so scared. And I've done all the research and I know how to take the precautions and I double masked and I wore an N95 and glasses and a face shield and, you know, had hand sanitizer everywhere and was really being- as careful as could be, but I'm afraid. I have asthma. I This is a, a virus that affects people's lungs and ability to breathe. And the whole time that I was en route, despite all of the precautions taking and my isolating at home before I flew and knowing I would isolate here and all of the testing I did, it was really scary. And I think there's just something comforting for me about that show right now. It's like, it's like the, the screen version of comfort food. Right. Was the flight what you anticipated or when you got on, did you breathe any sense of relief? Not really. I mean, you know, I, I traveled with my dog and mm-hmm. she is amazing. And during any sort of real motion on the plane, she'll jump and sit on my lap. Um, I, I joke that she's like my living anxiety blanket. I also traveled with a weighted blanket. <laughs> so I've got I to get one of these weighted blankets. So do they really work? Oh, they're so good. Yeah, yeah I really do. I sleep better. Yeah, I'm just like, I have every tip for any kind of anxiety you could ever need. <laughs> no, I was just, honestly, it was a little bit selfish that I was asking because I was selfishly hoping that you were going to say the plane felt really safe it was not nothing to fear. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't. Instead, that it, I'm looking up weighted blankets. <laughs> I mean, listen, I fall much more on the cautionary end of the spectrum with this. I'm looking mm-hmm. at case numbers. I mean, I think having you know one of my closest friends be an epidemiologist who's on the COVID tracking project, who's translating science for me every day. Yeah, I'm just very worried about it, and and also understand that I've been able to do my podcast from home. I went to set two days in LA last year. And again, again, not being able to work in your normal way is hard, but I was able to do other work from home. And I know that by my staying home, I'm helping to protect other people and and vice versa. So I've been desperate to go somewhere, but I've only really made driving trips if if I've escaped my own home. And not to judge anyone who's traveled, but it wasn't that the plane felt unsafe. It was that I hadn't been around that many people right. in 11 months. Okay, so tell me something fun. What was the last lie that you told? And you think of one. Yes, and it actually <laughs> has to do with Grey's Anatomy, which is oh my so scary. But so I'm, I'm here, I'm in Canada, and my sleep schedule is really off. I'm such a night owl normally. 
So going, going to bed at home at 1am here, I'm going to sleep at like four, four 30 in the morning. It's a disaster. And I had a zoom call the second day that I was here. You know, I went to bed at four something. I woke up just before noon feeling really confused. And I knew that I had this call at one and I, I made food for Maggie and started making coffee and turned on an episode of Grace. And I was just in it. And I was late for my zoom call. I, I don't know why I didn't just own that as an adult because it's funny to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was watching a rerun of season 11 of Grey's Anatomy and missed- Right, I was too immersed. Yeah, I was just so in it, but I had that like intense feeling of almost childhood shame, you know, like when you run into class late or something. So what did you say? I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I just got to this hotel and it's like a weird resident place, which it is. And, uh, you know, and I was like, I didn't know how to get on the Wi-Fi. So I had to call the front desk and I had had to do that the night before when I got here. So I was like, it's technically not, not true, but it's not true now. I'm just, I'm taking like 9 p.m. last night and 1 p.m. today. Wait, you're just conflating the times. Do you know what I mean? Like everything that you said did happen. It just did not happen when you said it did. But as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, I am an adult. Why am I doing this? Why do I feel like I need to make an excuse I think if you had said, I got too caught up, like you said, in a rerun of Grey's, it would have felt less respectful Respectful. to the Zoom people than it would have if there had been some mishigas with you checking in, because that feels like that was out of your control, where if we're honest, you could have turned off the show, but you didn't want to, and that's okay. I just got caught. I thought I had all this time. Yeah, but that's good TV. On what occasion do you think it's okay to lie? God, that's hard. I think it's always very circumstantial. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone has different opinions and comfort levels. I've had conversations. I had a conversation recently with one of my closest friends about a lie that someone else told. And we were all kind of debating whether it was appropriate or not. And to me, I saw that this person who we all know had told a small lie really to protect someone else's feelings and also kind of not to get in the middle of stuff that was going on between other people. And the person I was talking to said, but it doesn't matter because they, they were put in the middle. And even though that wasn't their fault, they should have just said, and, and it was so interesting to hear perspectives on what was acceptable, I guess is, is the best way to phrase it. And I don't really know if there's a, a blanket statement, but I think I would, if I found out I'd been lied to, I would be more apt to understand it, brush it off, not care if that was done to protect me from something or because it was an old story and there was no way of changing the outcome anyway. You know, I I understand when people want to divert around doing harm. Right. So it's intention. Like, what is the intention? Yeah, but I've also seen the desire not to do harm cause more harm. So totally. I don't know. It's hard. I mean, when do you think it's okay? Listen, you have to navigate everything. I am so familiar with people who, like you said, they don't want to insert themselves in situations and in doing so kind of cause more issues. Hopefully no one ever lies about anything serious. The times where I think it's fine to lie is when you're too caught up with like Meredith and McSteamy to get to your Zoom and you like fib and that's fine. Do you know what I mean? Certainly not when it's indicative of having a poor character or Mm -hmm. having ill intent. 
That's when yeah. I think obviously like nobody's on board with that. All right. What have you had enough of lately? I've had enough of this kind of bone tired feeling mm-hmm. that I know everyone is having at this point in the pandemic, which ironically is my happier answer. I've also really, really had enough of the nonsense coming out of the GOP right now. I mean, they have just become like a full-blown fascist, anti-democratic group of apologists for insurrection and violence. I mean, there has not been an attack on our capital since 1814 by foreign nationals. Right. This is so serious and they're acting like it isn't. And it's enraging to me when apologists and QAnon conspiracy theorists are called the extreme right when then they claim the extreme left are are people like AOC and Bernie who just want people to access healthcare. These are not the same things. They are not the same things. And I'm so tired of the false equivalency. Yeah. That's the sort of thing where you just want to bang your head against the wall. Yeah. I think that we have lost sight of also like, and maybe this is what's driving you back to grace. It seems like a more simple time, you know, just where there was like just certain mores that people fell into and a better sense of right and wrong and safety. And what is being passed off these days, like you said, is just unacceptable on every level and insane. For me, the thing that has really been illuminated is that it's because we have continued throughout our history to excuse the inexcusable. So this is the latest backlash to equity. And when you look back, you see the backlash of women's liberation. You see the backlash of the civil rights movement. You see that Jim Crow was a backlash. It goes farther and farther and farther back because the people who've held on to the sort of high, small pinnacle of power don't want oppressed groups whether they're women or black people or brown people or Native Americans, they don't want oppressed groups to be able to access power. And so anytime there is a perception that power is becoming slightly more equitable, they swing back in the other direction. And every time they swing back, they move farther and farther and farther to this extreme fascist authoritarian right. And we as a society have not done the work to stop that. We've excused it. We've made you know, memes about presidents who did terrible things to our citizens. We, you know, you and I have had a modicum of privilege and protection um, because of the way that we look. And so we say like, and I've said it and thought it, by the way, I'm, I'm, I mean this to agree with you. We say like, can't we go back to feeling safer? But there were always people who didn't feel safe. Of course. There always were. And yeah. we have to do the work now. It has to be a major substantive change. And I know you know that. I mean, my God, we've been working on I Am a Voter together for, I mean, how long? It's like this this is the thing that drives all of us is, is to really take it apart and rebuild it better. I'm just really on a rant. I'm like, wow, I've really had, a, I've had enough of that. You know what? I asked the question, girl, keep going. Yeah, that, that's really what I've had enough of. The false equivalency and and the excuses made for inflicted terror. I'm just, I'm done. Totally. Enough. Okay. So I think that we're all acutely aware of what we feel that we have given up over the last year that just, you know, Mm -hmm. very simple things that we have taken for granted. 
But I also think that through this experience, there's been a lot of silver linings. And I wonder for you, what do you feel like you have gained through this experience? It's sort of a double-edged sword because going through a pandemic and going through the election was a lot for so many people. Yet there was something about all of us being at home, I think, viewing each other's work and activism more than we might have been able to in the past, being able to connect and do things that were prescient and powerful, the ability to jump onto incredible organizing Zoom calls with hundreds of unbelievable women who I just respect so deeply to launch calls to action to see the greatest civil rights protests in history on earth to be part of those things, those were the the positive side of all of that for me. And then personally, I've never actually lived at home. Wow. I moved to North Carolina when I was 21 years old and I have spent 10 months a year, every year on location in a state where I don't live, missing, you know, friends and family and weddings and birthdays and And when I, you know, sort of came home after I left my last show, I still wasn't home. I was traveling all the time. I was working. I was living in other places for films and pilots and and doing so much travel and speaking for political work and activist work and marches. And and it was always go, 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 go. I was really used to that pace. And I got home in February and I haven't left my home until this week. Right. It's been almost a year. And I planted a garden and I raised chickens and I adopted a new dog. And I had connection with friends. You know, even in the beginning, we would have dinner on FaceTime. Things that people haven't always had time to do in the past if we're separated. And so we were apart. But weirdly, I felt so close to everyone. and those things have have really been a gift. Hello, my cheeky friends. Christina Evangelista here from the Half Naked Podcast, a show about underwear, vulnerability, and history. Yep. If you've ever been curious about those strappy things at the bottom of your corset or why thongs were invented, join me on Half Naked where we expose the crazy and fraught history of the undergarment industry. So tell me about, you shot a film in the last, what was it, maybe two months? Oh yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah, so I'm curious for you as an actress, this time you were literally locked in. So what was that like to, as an experience, being so completely honed in, quite literally, mm-hmm. where you're not, you're not going in and out in the same way that you would traditionally when you're filming and still trying to do all the other things. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? And do you think that will shift the way that you approach making films or making television in the future? Mm. It's funny because I, f- I forget, but I did. I went to Utah for three and a half weeks to make a movie. It's funny when you get so used to just driving mm-hmm. and then you, you forget that that's travel, but it was a, it was a crazy experience. You know, the plan had been for 2020 to do this job that I'm doing now in 2021. We were going to do this from February to March. Mm-hmm. And then all of May, I was going to go shoot this movie in upstate New York. And then theoretically we'd be back to doing this show, you know, 
if and when, knock on wood, it gets picked up. And we would be working by July and then schedules blew up. And they were able to kind of reconfigure this movie, much like The Big Chill. It takes place with a group of friends in a house. And they did some edits to the script and they found this big vacation home in Utah in this place I'd never heard of, about 30 minutes from Park City. And they said, okay, we're going to do this here. And the cast is going to live in the house while we shoot. And we're renting the houses on either side. And that's where the crew will stay. And the crew was cut down to be so small. I mean, it was like a skeleton crew. And the cost of doing the COVID tests for the entire cast and crew three days a week meant that we didn't have the budget for a second camera and second camera operator. Right, because that just adds so much. It's so, so much. And so we were required to isolate and test multiple times in LA. And then it was a straight drive to Utah. And then we isolated together in the house. And for three and a half weeks, we just never went anywhere, saw anyone. And it's winter in this place, this, um, this house that they rented for the set is on a golf course. So it's empty in the winter. So we got there and we were the only people on, you know, 10,000 acres. I'm going, this, this is the horror movie. <laughs> like, but everyone was so great. And it was such a strange experience. And, and it's scary too, as an actor, because, you know, the whole crew is wearing face masks and PPE shields the whole time, but we can't. Right. So, you know, you come onto set and you're just standing like this. And you realize how exposed you are and the amount of trust you have to have for everyone around you in a situation like this. It was, it was wild and it was really emotional and really confronting. Everyone went through a night at least where somebody cried. It was really wild. And we were doing it 10 months into no one having been on a set. The first day, day of rehearsal, we all were like, do we remember how to do this? Right. I do this, but it was great. It was really cathartic and really special. And I think it was the perfect project to jump back into that performer's pool on because it was so well-written and so well thought out and really timely as far as the topics that we were investigating together. Okay. Let's talk about, you know, obviously we can agree as women, there's a lot of societal messages that we receive in terms of the way that we're meant to look, the way that we're meant to behave. And I feel like as an actress, that must be even more extreme for you. I want to talk about the notion of having it all. Is that Mm -hmm. something that you buy into at all? Do you feel pressure in any way? Do you think it's realistic Yeah. I mean, look, I I think we all feel an immense amount of pressure to get it all right and to do all of the things, but I also think it's total bullshit. I, I don't have enough hours in the day to do all of the things that I want to do, that I need to do, that I'm expected to do. Even the way that physically as an actor, people put expectations on you and people will talk to you about your body and I'm like, I don't, what am I supposed to do? Spend three hours in the morning working out and doing face masks. Who has time for this? You're like, I'm watching Grey's, okay? (laughs) Here, here I am. But you know what I mean? It's like, I, I just don't understand how we are expected to be 
completely in shape and always have a bow out and always have our makeup done and have a cute outfit on all the time and do a podcast, do a TV show, make movies, have opinions, travel for politics, work on an election. And then, you know, well, why haven't you had kids yet? It's like, I don't have time to take care of myself yet. I'm still working on that. You know, there's a lot of expectations that to me just feel kind of preposterous. And I think that one of the things that I am working on getting my head around now is realizing that there has to be a hierarchy of importance to me. Do you feel really set in what the hierarchy looks like? Does that evolve? Well, so I've sort of been analyzing the hierarchy of how I spend my time. Mm -hmm. And I realize there are certain things that need to change a little bit because some things that are important to me, I don't have time for. And figuring out how to make those changes is really hard. But I think if we're not talking about it, if we're not honest about it, if we're just out here, you know, acting like we have it all figured out, we lose out on resources. We lose out on advice. We, we lose out on connection over vulnerability and, and things that make our conversations intimate rather than surface. That's something, by the way, I'm terrified about when this pandemic is over finally. Going back to surface? I already don't know how to have small talk. Right. I don't know how to do it now. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like my first question is like, how are you dealing with your internalized trauma? What are you afraid of? And people are like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> so my God, it requires a vulnerability with our community to even begin to figure out what we want that we don't have or maybe where we're spending too much time and how we need to readjust but it is, I mean, it's a work in progress for me. It's interesting because to your point, you said, well, we're expected to do X and Y and, you know, have this and have this. And I hear the words coming out of your mouth, but obviously at the same time, it's like, but you are doing all those things, right? So it's like, we're all kind of beleaguered by like, you expect us to do this, but yet at the same time, we're, we're all actually like doing the juggle. We all feel maybe overextended, yeah. but we are making it happen. So how do we, how do we recalibrate? Well, I think we're making a lot happen, but I know for me, my personal health is always the first thing that goes out the window. Mm -hmm. I will be on every Zoom. I will do every live. I will be on every campaign call. I will be on with activists in Milwaukee and then call into voting groups in Pennsylvania. I mean, I will do 12 hour days and you know, if it weren't for my lovely partner who, you know, he'll walk in the room and under the Zoom window, hand me a taco and a coffee. If it weren't for him, there would have been days this year that I I don't think I would have remembered to eat, which is absurd for a person who's as hungry as I am. <laughs> but I just didn't have time, you know? Right. So I don't, I'm not meditating. I'm not exercising regularly. I'm not doing the things that are good for me and that are required for me to be able to sustain my passions. And that's sort of where an alarm bell goes off. And so the last couple of weeks, I've been blocking out much more time. I've started trying to block out regular exercise in my week, force myself to do it, even though I don't want to, who wants to, but it's really hard. And I, I, I never want to make it look easy mm -hmm. because I don't know anyone who, who this is all easy for, but I think if we can get honest about those things, we can learn to hack our schedules and our, and our lives better together. 
Right. And I like what you said too, about when you're not opening yourself up for the conversations that you're missing out on the shared experience, the collective feelings of being overextended that we all feel, but how, you know, under normal circumstances, do you think that you make sure that you're doing as much as you can so that you're not left with that feeling of, or, or maybe the feeling never goes away. Like no matter how many Zoom calls you show up for, no matter how many, like you said, calls to action or advocacy yeah. or supporting of causes or people, somehow at the end of the day, you're going to remember the thing that you didn't do. And that is what I think we focus on too much. Absolutely. I always just wonder how we instead kind of focus on what we are accomplishing instead of mm-hmm. coming from that feeling of lack in our own efforts. I mean, what a practice to institute, right? I I was reading about gratitude practices recently, and something that really struck me is one of the women whose writing I was reading talked about how she didn't just, you know, start her day with, these are the three things I'm grateful for. She added onto it an accomplishment list so that she started to tell herself what she had accomplished mm-hmm. and that that sort of served as a counter to the feeling that we're never doing enough. Enough to me is like the worst word on earth. (laughs) Right. How do we determine what is enough? Yeah. What's enough for you versus what's enough for me? That's really like the monkey on my back. So I have, I've really tried to listen to ideas about how to kind of circumnavigate that negative feedback loop. I do think that this year has intensified that. It has intensified those feelings of anxiety, those feelings of self-criticism for so many of us. And I do really feel like I am in a moment in time where I'm having to rethink a lot because I'm used to triage. It's like, you know, again, not to not to keep taking it back to my favorite show, Grey's Anatomy, but it, <laughs> it's kind of like being in the ER. Uh, but it just fits for everything, you know? Yeah. There's a lesson in there for everything. Yeah. Life has felt like an emergency room. It has felt like constant triage. Here's the problem. Do what you can. How can you help? And to attempt to reprogram the operating procedure to look at the day and say, what do I want to do? What do I want to be proactive about? Not just reacting to. It's a very interesting moment. Well, probably made more interesting by this quarantine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and we're only on day four, you know, I'm going to call you back on day 10 and really see where you're at, you know, just like okay. really getting into it. I love it. Listen, we're both in very, very fortunate positions, but so many of us have been stripped of the kind of external markers for us in terms of working or just kind of identity systems. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, do you have a sense for you, especially now that this last year has, you know, like you said, you're at home for the first time, you're investing almost, it sounds like most in your own life in a way that you haven't done in a long time while you've been on the road, you're creating a home, you're raising chickens, you're, you know, doing all these different things. Can you identify where you derive your sense of identity from? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's really a sense of service. Mm -hmm. It's activism. It's showing up for other people. It's, it's deep friendship. You know, the way that I show up as a friend for my community is a big part of my identity. I, I think I feel really lucky in that I have not 
ever rooted myself in my career as my identity. Okay. I have always tried to be very clear with people that my career is not who I am. My career is what I do. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of other things too that really fulfill me. And I'm lucky that I really love my job, but it's not who I am. I think that that has given me the kind of courage of conviction to be so outspoken politically because people tell people in my industry not to do that. Don't alienate people. Don't isolate people. You won't grow your Instagram as quickly or you, you know, if you do a show at a theater, you won't sell as many tickets. And I'm like, I'm supposed to care about my ticket sales more than I care about democracy. And that doesn't work for me. And, and I know there are people who do, and that's fine. We all have different ways of moving through the world, but I won't apologize for mine. Mm-hmm. That firmness and what I know to be true is a thing I'm very grateful for because as firm as I am in that regard, I'm so sensitive to criticism, to what feels like attack. I mean, I can get one nasty DM or tweet and I'll think about it for days. It'll make it hard for really? me. Oh yeah. Any like oh. is that a blanket negative statement or is it so- about something in particular? Like if it's someone who doesn't agree with your politics, I can't imagine you're taking that personally. No, but people don't come at you about politics. They come at you about your intellect, about your being, about what they perceive of you. Even for me doing a lot of uh, sharing of information that explains, you know, the wealth gap and what the GOP did with the $2 trillion tax cut for billionaires and how it's destroyed, you know, the middle class and the, and the lower working class and made so many things so impossible. People will come at me and say, well, you know, you're a rich actress. And I'm like, first of all, no. Second of all, we're not talking about the same things. Right. I'm talking about Jeff Bezos and and Bill Gates and, you know, Elon Musk, people who, if they were taxed simply for one week of their wealth and what they make on their wealth, not even their actual wealth, just if they were taxed properly, even just for one week, they could close the deficit in a budget for one of the 50 states. Oh my God. What they could do across the board if they wanted to. But it's so interesting that billionaires pay 3% tax and I pay 40 And people will come at me and say, I have no idea what it is to worry about money or, and, and it's not kind. I mean, the way it's phrased is so withering and insulting and it's very like, who the fuck do you think you are? And it's all bitch this and cunt that. And I mean, it is so intense and I'm sweating even just like thinking about how it feels to read that stuff. And it's such an interesting thing to me because I look at it and I, and I think, wow, we've been taught as a society to fight with each other over levels of success in the, you know, average to above average pool Mm -hmm. and ignore that there is like a whole other planet over here where something different is happening, where you see people work to protect a class of people whose abuses of the system make them abused. It's like Stockholm syndrome. And and the interesting thing about it is that that societal teaching means that we often abuse people who don't deserve it. So when someone, you know, sends me just like a bitingly insulting comment or a death threat 
it's so shocking to me that wanting to advocate for your neighbor could result in that. One of the many jobs that I do is working in film and TV. Because of that, I'm also doubted as being worthy of having an opinion. I'm told I'm not allowed to voice an opinion, that I have no right to enter into public discourse, that I clearly don't know what I'm talking about and don't have the intelligence level to participate, which is always amusing to me, considering I studied journalism in college. Uh, and politics is what I've been doing for 15 years. But it's, it's an interesting thing to be one person on the receiving end of a, of a fire hose of feedback. Right. Well, I think there's so many things going on, right? Everything is relative. So it's like when you say you're kind of looping yourself into one group and saying there's a whole other planet over here. But we know nothing about this person that is giving you this barrage of hate other than it says so much more about them than it does about you. And I know that that's true. On an an intellectual level, you understand that, but that doesn't mean emotionally it doesn't sting and that you are immune to that, of course. And that's just what it is. And, And there is this sort of not publicly spoken rule in entertainment that you're never supposed to address the haters and you are always supposed to just act like you're above it and let your life be great. And and when something detracts from your quality of life, when something makes you feel unsafe in your own home, and I've had things that people have sent to me that have made me feel very unsafe in my own home. I don't see why I'm supposed to keep up a facade Mm -hmm. of everything's great. I, I think that those facades in so many arenas have been the detriment of us. They've made us stop seeing each other as human. So in whatever way I can communicate clearly about humanity, other people's and my own, I I feel like it's a, a way to combat a little bit of that energy that seems to make a lot of digital spaces in particular really toxic. Do you think that you have always felt such a strong sense of conviction in terms of using your voice Or do you think that that's something that has developed as you've gotten older? I always have felt it. Mm -hmm. I was organizing environmental clubs and walkouts in elementary school and junior high. And, you know, it's always been there for me. I, I think because I do have a much clearer sense of worth for us as a society than perhaps I have for me as an individual. You have to take your victories. Do you do that, Sophia? Do you feel like you take stock of the things that you have accomplished? No, I really don't. That's not my spiritual gift. And it's a thing I have to work to cultivate. And so maybe that is a measure of success for me too, is being able to own the wins. Maybe that's something to think about for the next 10 days, you know? (laughs) Forget about forward space and maybe get out a old pen and pad and all jokes aside, think about all the things that you had hoped to accomplish. And if you look at how much you've already done, are you pretty goal oriented in terms of like, are you fluid? Do you set markers for yourself each year? This is what I, I hope to be able to do. I've never really done that. And I've never journaled. I've always wanted to be the person who has a journal. I've always dreamed of being a person who keeps a journal and also being a person who's a runner. Like, I love the idea. It feels like a commercial, right? Like she sounds cool. Ponytail makes an espresso, goes out for a run, you know, like it feels cool. And, and I don't run unless I'm being chased. I hate it. Same. Uh, so I don't really know if that's ever going to happen for me, but you could journal. No one has to chase you into journaling. You could do that. I have so many journals and I never write in them. I'm like, maybe if I use this book, 
I did that for 2021. I was like, oh, it was, it was probably honestly like December 29th. And I was like, oh shoot. Okay. I really like, I want to get this particular journal because I'm going to journal every day of 2021. It's going to be a great way for me to get in touch with myself, my goals, you know, my feelings, but I have to get this one. It's shipping from London. I'm not going to get, and I was like, I am setting so many hurdles and maybe you're not a journaler. Maybe like you said, that's maybe not your spiritual Mm -hmm. gift, but you know, there's so many other things. So I, I think for me, when I think about goals, I've never really thought about it that way. I've never thought, oh, I want to do this. It's more that I have too many ideas that I'm excited about and I can't possibly execute on all of them. So I have to just kind of throw things at the wall and see what sticks. You know, I wanted to start a podcast and I did it. I didn't have to think about it as a goal. I just realized that in the way that I like to be in service in the way that I like to share, I was like, I can text Gloria Steinem. That's nuts. I should interview her because other people need to hear what she's saying. It it was a way to sort of open that plane of privilege in a way to invite people into this sort of cozy living room conversation in the same way that you and I are. It, It just felt fun. And so I just did it. I'd be curious what it would be like to set some more long-term goals and have to make a plan to achieve them. I think the reason I've never done it is because my schedule has never been my own Mm -hmm. in TV or on a movie. You get your schedule when you wrap the night before you can't ever make a plan. You can't have a routine. You can't book a workout class. You can't do it. So I, I don't know. I've never done it, but I also think there's no time like the present. Yeah, there's such there I know there is value in routine and so maybe I should try to make one. If you were to be able to set an idea of what having it all would look like to you today, what would that be? I'm so excited about this show that I'm about to do. And you know, you you just never know. That's the other thing about being an artist. You never have any idea. Are we at liberty to talk about this show or is this a Yeah, yeah, it's a phenomenal script from a writer named Katie Wesh and Jenny Ehrman who produced Jane the Virgin. And they're such an incredible team. And it's a show called Good Sam. And it is about Sam, that's me, who is a doctor. I I, I fell into watching Grey's because I was like- Right, now it's all coming full circle. But then I I forgot how hooked I'd been on it. And and now I'm just hooked. And I'm I'm realizing I probably shouldn't be watching someone else's medical show because I should be working on my own, but all in due time. And it's just this really incredible moment to look at this woman who is kind of a prodigy at what she does, but she works under her father, who is a perfectionist and and for whom nothing is ever enough. And, And so what I love about it is that the central relationship is a father and a daughter. It's not like, you know, a soap opera about like, but I love him, you know, I've done those. (laughs) Um, And that dynamic of what pressure looks like, of of what never feeling like you're enough looks like, of what it means to finally own your talent and skill. It's very prescient that I'm doing this job right now. Yeah, my God, I feel like literally these writers have just stolen our conversation and made it into a show. Who knew? Who knew? How did they do that ahead of our conversation? But it's very cool. It's very cathartic. It's got a phenomenal speed to it and excitement and and everyone working on it is just so great. And so I'm pumped about it. And and before COVID, I was 
shadowing heart surgeons and literally, you know, scrubbing into ORs on open heart surgeries. And it was wild and amazing and, and really just reminded me about what's really important. And that feels cool that when a, when a job that's make-believe can tap you into the most real thing, it feels pretty special. Well, for someone who's worried about doing enough, it sounds to me like you're doing plenty. If you are scrubbing into heart surgeries, I think you're good. I'm so happy that you took the time to be with us today. I appreciate you coming out of your quarantine and engage- and coming out of your grays and engaging with um, real people. For anybody who doesn't follow you, where can they find you? Where can they find the podcast? Anything else that we need to follow along with? Yeah. So Instagram and Twitter, I'm just at Sophia Bush. With a PH, not enough. Sophia Vergara takes that. Ooh. We always joke that like anytime we've ever been at an event together and someone yells Sophia, I'm like, I can't follow you. You're anyway, she's perfect. So yeah, Instagram and Twitter at Sophia Bush. And the podcast, my podcast is work in progress. Like we all are. Yes. I those are the that. handles on social and the mantra of my life. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you sharing your work in progress with us today. It was good to see you and good luck with the rest of your quarantine. Thank you, my dear. So nice to see your face. That's it for today's episode of Having It All and Other Lies. I've been having so much fun talking to and learning from all these amazing women, and I hope you're enjoying it too. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review, and also follow along at Having It All Podcast and swing on over to my page at Sarah underscore Riff. I love hearing from you guys, so please keep up the DMs and emails. And if there's anyone that you want to hear from, let us know. Having It All and Other Lies is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. The show is edited by Maureen Bigas. See you next week.